You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. Today is Monday, October 5th. I'm Charlotte Peterson, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. For their support, we'd like to thank First U.S. Community Credit Union, regional independent credit union since 1936, with locations throughout Northern California, serving members with loans, savings programs, personal service, and financial solutions in Grass Valley, Auburn, Rockland, and Sacramento. Firstus.org. Don Adams Antenna Services, locally owned and operated dish network installer, assisting Nevada County residents with satellite television for over 35 years. Located on Jaworski Drive in Grass Valley, 530-274-3709. And Zelmer Law Group, a real estate and business law firm with offices on Broad Street in Nevada City, also Santa Rosa. Jay Zelmer has been practicing law in California since 1983. Information, zelmerlawgroup.com. Following NPR headlines and regional weather, Paul Emery talks with Michael LaMarca about the reopening of movies at the Del Oro Theater. NPR reports on the election and a fresh Obamacare challenge that looms over the new Supreme Court term. We have today's national native news. Closing out today's newscast, we have a commentary by Jim Hightower. At 6.30, we bring you Wings, and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines and regional weather. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. President Donald Trump is back at Pennsylvania Avenue tonight, three days after he was admitted to Walter Reed Medical Center with symptoms of COVID-19. The president giving the thumbs up as he left the hospital tonight. Meanwhile, as NPR's Windsor Johnson reports, at least a dozen of the president's staff have tested positive for the virus, including the White House press secretary. The president's medical team says Trump has met or exceeded all standard hospital criteria to be discharged, but is not entirely out of the woods yet. Doctors say the president will continue to be monitored around the clock at the White House. In a tweet, Trump continued to downplay the seriousness of the health threat, saying that he felt really good and telling people not to be afraid of the virus. NPR's Windsor Johnston, Trump via his Twitter account, also says he intends to take part in the next presidential debate coming up on October 15th. There have been no positive coronavirus tests so far tied to President Trump's last campaign swing before he disclosed his positive tests for the virus. As Brian Basque of Minnesota Public Radio reports, state officials have been on the lookout for potential cases. Trump held a fundraiser and rally in Minnesota one day before the White House began dealing with a COVID outbreak that landed the president in the hospital. Chris Ayersman of the state health department says her agency is ready to do contact tracing if cases connected to the campaign visit begin to crop up. Our awareness is heightened because of the situation with the president, and we have not yet identified any positive cases at this point. Two Republican legislative leaders and three GOP members of Congress who are around the president during the trip say they are symptom-free. For NPR News, I'm Brian Baxton, St. Paul. Pennsylvania's U.S. Senator Pat Toomey says he will retire at the end of his term in 2022. As Sam Dunklaw of member station WITF reports, the move leaves a competitive Senate seat open in the next election cycle. For nearly two decades, Toomey has been a reliable vote for congressional Republicans. His retirement sets the stage for a competitive Senate race in 2022, 
and he hopes his announcement will give Republicans ample time to regroup. In the meantime, Toomey says he'll focus on finishing out his term. I've got two years left, and my intention is to work as hard as I possibly can. I will have the luxury, in a way, of not having a campaign to manage at the same time. Democrats have been steadily gaining ground in Pennsylvania. Toomey won a tight race in 2010 and was re-elected by a narrow margin in 2016 in what was then one of the most expensive Senate races ever. For NPR News, I'm Sam Dunklaw in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. The U.S. service sector showed signs of growing for a fourth straight month in September. The Institute for Supply Management says its service sector index was up nearly a full percentage point from the previous month. Stocks rose today, the Dow up 465 points. You're listening to NPR. The Supreme Court has declined to hear a copyright case over Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. NPR's Andrew Limbong reports the move let stand a previous ruling that Led Zeppelin did not copy an earlier song. The case was brought by the trustee of Randy Craig Wolf, the late guitarist and songwriter for the band Spirit. That's the Spirit song Taurus, which came out in 1968. Three years later, Led Zeppelin came out with Stairway to Heaven. The original lawsuit was filed in 2014, asking for royalties and a co-writing credit for Wolf. In 2016, a jury ruled in favor of Zeppelin. That ruling was reaffirmed earlier this year. The music industry has been fighting a number of copyright lawsuits since a jury found Robin Thicke liable for copyright infringement in 2015 for his song Blurred Lines. Andrew Limbong, NPR News. French authorities say they placed the Paris region on maximum virus alert, banning festive gatherings and requiring all bars to close, but allowing restaurants there to remain open. With the number of infections there rapidly rising, Paris police officials say the new restrictions will apply for at least the next several weeks. Starting tomorrow, bars will be closed in Paris and its suburbs. Student parties and all other festivities, as well as family events and establishments open to the public, will be banned there. Crude oil futures prices took their biggest bump up since May amid new hopes for a new coronavirus stimulus package. Oil up $2.17 a barrel today to end the session at $39.22 a barrel in New York. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. Now for regional weather. According to the National Weather Service, in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area, tonight skies will be mostly clear with a low around 57 and light and variable winds. Tuesday will be sunny with a high near 86 and partly cloudy skies overnight with a low around 57 and winds of 5 to 7 miles per hour will become light and variable. Tonight in Sacramento, skies will be mostly clear with a low around 57 and light and variable winds. On Tuesday, skies should be sunny with a high near 91 and an overnight low around 58 with partly cloudy skies, and winds are expected to be light and variable. In Truckee tonight, skies will be mostly clear with a low around 41 and winds of 5 to 10 miles per hour. On Tuesday, skies should be sunny with a high near 78 and an overnight low around 40 with partly cloudy skies and light winds becoming 5 to 10 miles per hour in the afternoon and throughout the evening. Tonight in Angels Camp, skies will be mostly clear with a low around 63 and winds of 5 to 7 miles per hour. On Tuesday, skies should be sunny with a high near 89 and overnight lows around 63 with mostly cloudy skies. 
and winds of 5 to 8 miles per hour will become light and variable in the evening. There is a continued chance of widespread haze and patchy smoke throughout all of our listening areas for the next few days. I'm speaking with Michael Lamarca, manager of the Sierra Cinemas. Michael, uh, we've talked a few times since we've had the COVID thing descend upon us, and it's never been particularly good news, but this is a little better. Uh, Tell us what's happening and how you're going to be able to soon reopen uh, some of your theaters. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, we are very pleased um, at the moment. Uh, We have received two big you know, shots in the arm, so to speak, um, that are good news in a, in a time of a uh, lot of very difficult news. Um, the first of which is obvious to everyone now, which is that we moved into the moderate tier here in Nevada County. And uh, for movie theaters, uh, similar to restaurants, that means that our maximum capacity in our auditoriums is now lifted to 50% which is, uh, you know, obviously much better than 25% when you're in the business of selling tickets. Uh, and then the second piece of good news uh, is that we are the very, very fortunate recipients of a grant of uh, $150,000, which is a very large sum of money um, that has been given to us uh, via Nevada County, uh, these are funds that were appropriated for the CARES Act, so they're, um, they're federal funds. Um, but Nevada County created a, a process for uh, giving some of these funds out as macro grants to anchor institutions. And uh, we are one of the fortunate recipients, as well as the Center for the Arts in Grass Valley. And the Miners Foundry as well. Oh, and the Miners Foundry. I'm very Grass Valley-centered, but uh, of course, you're right there in Nevada City. So yes, and the Miners Foundry. And and several others as well. Well, that's a great boost, and I know it was a month or six weeks ago we we had a little talk, and you you were pretty concerned about whether you could continue, and you had the GoFundMe uh, outreach, and that did pretty well as well, I understand. It did. We were incredibly grateful to the community for you know stepping up and and you know giving us some donations at a very very difficult time. Um, you know that brought in about eighty thousand dollars, and this uh, additional funding will will give us a little opportunity um, to move forward uh, at a time where you know our business is very much up in the air. Um, so, you know, we're, we're very grateful and that's why we are committed to, um, trying to get the lights back on down there at the Del Oro Theater. You're going to start at the Del Oro then? Yeah, that's right. Uh, right now, uh, because the Del Oro has our largest auditorium out of all the, the nine that we have operated, um, we figure that with a 50% capacity restriction, it makes the most sense to, to open there. Um, and plus, you know, the, the dark side of the cloud uh, is that there aren't a lot of great movies coming uh, down the pike right now. Uh, 
Um, unfortunately, the biggest movies that Hollywood have made and planned to show are being canceled or postponed. So, um, so we figure that uh, just having the three auditoriums at Del Oro will be sufficient for the time being. I, I guess it, it kind of makes sense that they're going to hold off on their big films because they probably want to wait until things are up and running because they have to make a lot of money. You know, it's a chicken and egg, though, Paul. <laughs> they're they're waiting until uh, the virus is clear to, you know, show their big movies. But unfortunately, what's happening uh, is that the movie theaters themselves are uh, you know, having a terrible time. And, um, in fact, Regal uh, Cinemas, which is the second largest chain in the United States, just announced that it's closing over 600 of its locations across the country and in the U.K. They had just reopened in July with the hopes that we would all be able to play James Bond in November but with the announcement that James Bond is now pushed to next spring, they decided to just go dark again. Is that going to be permanent, or is it, are they just going to kind of put it on hold, as far as you well, know? Well, it's really hard to say. It, Regal is uh, part of Cineworld, which is a, one of the largest cinema companies on the planet. Who knows what's going to happen? Of course, they're going to find a way through this um, in some way. Uh, they have large markets to serve, and someday those large markets will come back to life. But, you know, the studios have said, well, we don't want to put our movies out there until the theaters are back online. And unfortunately, what's possible is that by next spring, many theaters just will not be there. They'll just go dark and never come back. Now, there'll be some uh, details uh, in terms of just buying tickets and going to the movies that'll be a little bit different. Like, uh, I do believe it's going to be reserved seating. Is that correct? Yeah, that's uh, we're, we're going to do a similar thing to what we did when we reopened in June. Uh, we're going to encourage everyone to buy their tickets in advance so that they can pick them out on a, a phone or on a computer. Um, but we will sell them at the door as well. Um, but basically the idea is that the software will uh, sort of create a, a buffer zone between your group and the other groups to, to keep the six-foot distance um, and also to limit the capacity to 50%. So there will be these little tiny little clusters of twos and threes here and there. I think, yeah, that's how the last time we did it, we actually had to close each of the uh, each other each other row was closed off but I, I believe that the software has gotten a little smarter and uh, in the next couple of weeks we'll we'll discover that ourselves well Michael uh, well, do you have an announcement about what your first films are going to be well we haven't nailed everything down yet but uh, I, I, one thing is for sure that we want to play tenant which was the um, Christopher Nolan film that opened for Labor Day weekend. Um, it's, you know, a brand new film that most people haven't seen yet. Um, and I think if you're a Christopher Nolan fan, you're going to really love it. So we certainly will be playing that. Um, there's also another film that we're looking at and probably going to bring in, which uh, is called The War with Grandpa. 
starring um, Robert De Niro. And it's, it looks like a fun family film about a kid that, you know, uh, has to move out of his room for his grandpa who's moving into the house. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, inev- inevitably there's some conflict there. So, um, so we're looking forward to that one as well. And um, we're going to, you know, probably mix in some other films, you know, movies that, you know, have shown previously crowd favorites, that kind of thing. And especially when the holidays start coming around with uh, Halloween and Thanksgiving, we'll look for some great holiday films to bring in and hopefully, you know, bring a smile to people's faces. Now, are the uh, smaller upstairs theaters going to be opening as well? Yes, for sure. Yeah, all three auditoriums. So three three screens. That'll give you a chance to have some diversity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in fact, we just, believe it or not, we just put in new seats uh, in the upstairs auditorium uh, at, at Del Oro, uh, like about a week before we closed down uh, in March. So <laughs> if you do come up to the upstairs auditorium, you'll enjoy our new cushy seats. And no word right now as to when the Sierra Cinemas or the Suttons are going to be opening. Well, yeah, at the moment, we're just holding tight with the Sierra Cinemas and the Sutton Cinemas. Um, You know, if there was a full slate of brand new Hollywood movies to play this holidays, then we would be opening all our screens. But right now, there's no reason to have nine screens. So we're sticking with the three. And, you know, we wanted to start in downtown. Uh, and then if, you know, conditions change, uh, then we'll, we'll move on to the other theaters. But really what's going on right now is, you know, a difficult scenario from a dollars and cents perspective. And if it weren't for the grant and for the support of the GoFundMe, we wouldn't be able to open at the Del Oro. So it's really our way of kind of giving back to the community and offering up an opportunity to get out of the house and have some fun with your friends and family in a safe way uh, during the next few months between now and New Year's. So the next time we have the discussion in my little household of let's go to a movie, we'll be able to do that. I certainly hope so. Michael, thank you so much for speaking with KVMR, and best of luck in your reopening. I've been speaking with Michael Labarca, manager of the Sierra Cinemas. Surviving justices of the United States Supreme Court begin their latest term today. They do it without the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and they will hear cases even as Senate Republicans push to confirm her replacement. Here's NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. The court is an institution built on tradition, and the traditional opening day of the term is this one, the first Monday in October. This time, though, there will be just eight justices, and because of COVID-19, once again, the justices will gather by telephone hookup to hear the lawyers make their arguments. Because they'll not be together, there will be none of the usual freewheeling debate. Instead, the justices will question in order of seniority for just a few minutes each, and once again, the public will be able to listen in. A lot has changed since July, when the court concluded a tumultuous term, surprising many with lopsided decisions involving LGBT rights and a repudiation of President Trump's claim of total immunity from both grand jury and congressional subpoenas. 
In other, more closely divided rulings, Chief Justice John Roberts occasionally broke with fellow conservatives to cast the fifth and deciding vote with the court's liberals. But as University of Michigan law professor Nicholas Bagley observes, although Roberts has an institutionalist streak, he may have lost his leverage with Ginsburg's death and the likely confirmation of the very conservative Barrett. The Chief Justice is no longer going to be the center vote here. Just how far right the court will move could become quickly apparent in a case to be argued a week after the election. It's the third challenge to the Affordable Care Act, which in the past was upheld by votes of 5 to 4 and 6 to 3. This time, the Trump administration and a coalition of red states are arguing that because the Republican Congress three years ago zeroed out the monetary penalty for those not covered by insurance, the whole law is now void. If the administration were to prevail, there would no longer be protections for those with pre-existing conditions, and Obamacare health insurance for some 22 million people would likewise be gone. Trump's newest Supreme Court nominee, Judge Barrett, has been highly critical of Chief Justice Roberts' reasoning in the previous Obamacare cases. But even Paul Clement, who led the initial legal challenge to the ACA, thinks this case is a stretch. It's just hard for me to say that the mandate was central when it doesn't have any teeth. Indeed, sources say that top Justice Department officials tried and failed to talk Trump out of bringing this case. The Obamacare case is just one of many controversies flashing red on the docket this term, many of them political. Some cases are already being expedited. One involves how many seats each state gets in the House of Representatives. The Constitution requires the, quote, whole number of persons in each state to be included for apportionment purposes. But President Trump maintains he has discretion to determine the numbers and has said he intends to exclude non-citizens without legal status. A three-judge federal court prevented him from doing that. Now the case is before the Supreme Court. In addition, there are numerous cases directly involving the upcoming election that are being teed up in the wings, cases that could determine who is the next president. Irv Gornstein is director of the Supreme Court Institute at the Georgetown University Law Center. Lurking in the background is the possibility that this could become the most tumultuous and divisive term since the Supreme Court decided Bush v. Gore. And that's just the beginning. There is, for instance, a case that pits the rights of religious groups against state and federal laws that bar discrimination. In this case, the city of Philadelphia contracts with a wide variety of groups that it pays to screen and certify couples for foster care. The city, however, cut off Catholic social services because the group refused on religious grounds to certify same-sex couples in violation of the city's non-discrimination law. The lower courts upheld the city's decision, citing the Supreme Court's 1990 decision declaring that religious groups are not entitled to exemptions from neutral, generally applicable laws. The decision was written by conservative icon Antonin Scalia. Nonetheless, four of the court's current conservatives have expressed an interest in overturning that decision, and with the addition of Judge Barrett, there may well be a majority. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. 
The family of a Quebec woman who died last week in a hospital while being taunted by staff is filing a lawsuit. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, the family also gave an emotional statement on her death, calling for justice. Joyce Echequan died in Quebec's Joliet Hospital. She had complained about stomach pains. She also used her phone to self-film while at the hospital. It showed a deeply distressed Echequan screaming in pain and hospital staff who berated her with racist remarks and calling her stupid. Two hospital staff have since been fired over the incident. A coroner's inquest is also underway. A visibly upset Carole Dubé is Echequan's husband. The racist systemic... Dubé says he's convinced she died because of systemic racism at the Juliet Hospital. <laughs> the Quebec government says there will be a public inquiry, but the Premier François Legault refuses to admit there is systemic racism. Over the weekend, hundreds of people took part in a protest rally in Montreal. Giselaine Picard is with the Assembly of First Nations. It's an issue of human rights. It's an issue where, you know, our human rights, our human rights of our people have been denied. And, uh, and we won't say it often enough. The system, the system is failing and has failed our people for too long. And for changes to happen, then the political class have to wake up. The video has led to widespread indignation, several inquiries, and a lawsuit. And it has highlighted systemic racism in healthcare, not just in Quebec, but in other provinces as well. Native leaders say they're not surprised by what happened to Echequan. Some saying for every Joyce Echequan that comes forward, there is a hundred who have not been heard. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. Walks, vigils, and other events were held across Canada Sunday to observe Sisters in Spirit Day, which honors missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. The Native Women's Association of Canada held a virtual gathering due to COVID-19 safety concerns. Families remembered their missing and murdered loved ones. Maggie Sidewink talked about her sister, Sonia, who went missing in 1994 and was later found murdered. She encouraged families, saying there's hope to move forward, heal, and find a collective voice. It is our responsibility as families to take the actions necessary. We can't wait for police. We can't wait for the government to do those actions for us. And vigils are one way, but other ways are actually when we go out and search for the missing when we lend, if we can, you know, be a part of the fundraisers that families need to do in order to raise those funds. We need to join the fight and we need to join in any way that we can to find useful in, in helping others heal. Advocates say they're working with families, Indigenous groups and governments. The Native Women's Association of Canada is calling for the creation of an investigative unit to examine cold cases, the creation of a database, and a healing initiative run by Indigenous women. The House Natural Resources Subcommittee on Energy and Mineral Resources and the Subcommittee on Water, Oceans, and Wildlife are hosting a virtual forum Monday on climate change in the Arctic. The panel includes Alaska Native guests, the melting Arctic climate change impacts on people and wildlife is being streamed on Facebook and YouTube. The forum is being led by House Democrats. I'm Antonia Gonzalez.
National Native News is produced by Kiwanaka Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the Sanoski Chambers Law Firm, championing tribal sovereignty and defending Native American rights since 1976 with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Suddenly, social distancing is our new national etiquette, abruptly supplanting handshakes, hugs, gatherings, and other forms of ingrained communal behavior by us humans. Awkward, disconcerting, isolating. Yet, as we frantically scramble to deter the health and economic ravages of COVID-19, we might benefit by pondering a self-inflicted cause of the contagion's disastrous spread. Social distancing. For some 40 years, American corporations and governments have imposed economic, political, and social policies to distance the financial fortunes of the wealthy few from the well-being of the workaday majority. Consider the interrelationship of multimillionaires with the unseen kitchen staff of restaurants where they dine. To further enrich themselves, such multimillionaires have forced low-wage policies on food preparers, denied health coverage for them, and lobbied to kill proposals to provide paid sick leave. So, a kitchen worker coughs because he or she is infected with coronavirus, but doesn't know it since the worker has no health care coverage for testing. Even though running a fever, the staffer must come to work or lose the job. A few days later, a multimillionaire sneezes because, well, COVID-19 doesn't distinguish between rich and poor. The very proposals that plutocrats have been blocking for years, like living wages, Medicare for all, home health care, and others, are exactly what a sane government would adopt to avoid the consequences of inequality that now confronts every American. This is Jim Hightower saying, the actual disease that's forcing social distancing on our country is the widening separation of rich elites from the rest of us. And the cure is a national push for renewed social cohesiveness. The catastrophic spread of COVID-19 reveals a truth we too often deny. We are a species of completely interdependent beings. What do the corporate powers from Wall Street to Walmart have in common? They hate the Hightower Lowdown. You can see why at www.hightowerlowdown.org. That's our newscast for this evening. KVMR's Evening News airs Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. and is produced by Emory Audio Productions. Coming up next, we bring you Wings and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. For Emory Audio Productions, I'm Charlotte Peterson, wishing you a fabulous evening.